one of the, the core elements of the book is his written correspondence with Dick Winters because that truly gave us an insider perspective, uh, perspectives in which they were very candid with each other about what they did and what they did not do during the Second World War. Uh, and so that was one of the really fascinating things is that you, you saw these older men coming to terms with their celebrity, celebrity that they were sometimes uncomfortable with. An excerpt from today's guest, whose latest book sheds light on one of the most enigmatic figures of Easy Company. Historian Jared Frederick is here to discuss Fierce Valor, the true story of Ronald Spears and his band of brothers. And I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spear. I've just released a brand new documentary. You can watch online for free on Tubi, the streaming service from Fox. The show is called Weather and Warfare, Millennia to Modern Time. Weather and Warfare dramatically retraces the meteorological forces during battlefield engagements that doomed or saved civilizations. In 1588, more than half of the Spanish Armada on its way around northern Britain was destroyed by storms in retreat back to Spain. Napoleon's attack on Russia was stopped cold by winter weather, as was Hitler's siege of Leningrad. Just click on the link in this episode's description to watch on the web or download the app or watch on Roku for free. I hope you check it out. Welcome back. Today's guest is a history instructor at Penn State Altoona. He's also a former park ranger at the Gettysburg National Military Park and hosts the popular YouTube channel Real History. His new book is called Fierce Valor, the true story of Ronald Spears and his band of brothers. It came out yesterday, and author Jared Frederick joins us now. Jared, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's always a pleasure, sir. And last time we spoke about your book on Dick Winters, and is this book, new book, an outgrowth of that? How did this come about? Yeah, in October of 2021, we did a book about Dick Winters that looked at his wartime correspondence and incorporated uh, some of his artifacts in it as well. And I would say that, that Fierce Valor is in many ways an offshoot or a sequel of sorts to that book, uh, because as we were researching Dick Winters and the material that my co-author Eric Dorr at the Gettysburg Museum of History had accumulated, we realized that we, we truly had an abundance of information on Ronald Spears. Uh, and a lot of that uh, just kind of accidentally fell into place given the level of uh, written correspondence that Dick Winters maintained with Ronald Spears between the 1980s and the 2000s. And in addition to that, uh, you know, we were able to reach out to some family members. We were able to do some deep diving on genealogy uh, and we, we found reference to him in all of these hidden places that, to our knowledge, no other historians had ever encountered. Um, but really, you know, the, 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 one of the, the core elements of the book is his written correspondence with Dick Winters, because that truly gave us an insider perspective, uh, perspectives in which they were very candid with each other about what they did and what they did not do during the Second World War. Uh, and so that was one of the really fascinating things is that you, you saw these older men coming to terms with their celebrity, celebrity that they were sometimes uncomfortable with. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, Spears gained a reputation in Easy Company 
as as a fearless warrior and, and also his nickname was Killer. Can you relate the incident where he actually uh, shot one of his own men? Yeah, and I, I won't give away too much of the story. Um, of but yeah. in short, uh, in the immediate aftermath of D-Day, Spears had a very volatile confrontation with a replacement sergeant. Uh, and uh, my co-author and I, we, we know the name of the sergeant, uh, but we, we opted to keep his name anonymous um, because we found out that he's that the sergeant still has some siblings who are still alive today. Oh. Uh, and the last thing that we wanted to do was to create this shocker of a revelation um, for family members who thought that their, uh, you know, beloved, you know, uncle or sibling uh, had died a heroic death on D-Day. Yeah. Um, but we we were able to find uh, some uh, first person uh, accounts and interviews um, predominantly through the, the generosity and the scholarship of airborne historian Mark Bando. And Mark Bando was really able to connect a lot of the dots for us uh, on this incident and other events regarding uh, Spears' life in the 101st Airborne. Um, but the short of the matter is, is that this sergeant uh, became intoxicated, uh, had a little bit too much uh, calvados, perhaps, uh, in, uh, in the fervor of liberation, as was often the case with uh, many airborne troopers. And he grew belligerent. And he wanted to go attack a fixed German position. Spears told him to remain in place, wait for American armor to come up from Utah Beach to help them flush out those positions. And uh, the sergeant uh, did not take too kindly to that. And uh, the, the sergeant started going for his Thompson submachine gun and purportedly Spears said, uh, if you're going to go for your gun, you better use it. Uh, and so that is, in fact, what happened. And the, it, it was a pure act of, of self-defense, uh, right. Spears uh, pulling uh, his, his own weapon on this uh, recalcitrant sergeant. Um, and so uh, where, where all of this becomes a bit muddled uh, and where a lot of the controversy or scuttlebutt or rumors uh, fall into place um, is that that same week, uh, Spears's company commander was killed in action right outside of Carentan. Uh, and so that did not afford Spears the formal opportunity to clear his name. And additionally, too, as, as Dick Winters wrote on more than one occasion, they needed capable officers in the field. And they did not have time to be doing inquiries or investigations because paratroopers were falling to the left and the right. And ultimately, uh, Spears could serve better on the front line rather than in the guardhouse. Now, he was uh, fearless in battle when they um, started moving out away from the peninsula. And there's an incident where he has to get a message across the front lines and the radio's out. And this is actually portrayed in the Band of Brothers miniseries. Can you talk a little bit about how he got that message across German lines through enemy fire? Speaking about the incident at Foy? Yeah. Yes. yes. Okay. Yes, in, uh, in January 1945, just a few weeks after the 101st Airborne famous stand at, at Bastogne, uh, the division was moving northward and they were capturing these little crossroads village one after another in domino fashion. And uh, th this leads to perhaps the, the most celebrated moment of the, the Spears myth or celebrity. 
Um, the Easy Company commander, um, an officer by the name of Norman Dyke, um, either froze in the midst of combat, and there were other paratroopers, though, uh, who insisted that, that Norman Dyke was actually wounded uh, in the attack on, on Foy, Forrest Guth, uh, a paratrooper being one of them. Um, but in any case, uh, Winters sends Spears in to relieve Dyke and to push the attack on into town. And mm -hmm. it was very chaotic. You had, uh, you know, multiple platoons moving forward and uh, communication and synchronization was key. And one of the, the great fears that uh, Spears had as his men were moving into town is that uh, I Company on Easy Company's flank simultaneously moving into town might accidentally start shooting at the men of Easy Company. And it's then when Spears very famously, you know, essentially runs through the German lines to connect up with I Company. Uh, you know, he's, you know, making hand signals. Um, he reaches out to one of the fellow officers in I Company, a man by the name of Roger Tinsley. And he tells them, you know, cease your fire. You know, we're, we're moving into town. Be careful of where you, you aim your muzzles. And so he tells Tinsley that. And then Spears turns around to reconnect with his platoons. And mere seconds later, uh, Tinsley is shot through the chest by enemy machine gun fire. Hmm. Uh, and so had Spears not moved when he did, it's in the realm of possibility that he would have been struck down with Tinsley. And this was a repetitive theme in his story that he just kept having one close call after another. Uh, he was wounded in Normandy. He was wounded in Holland. He's nearly killed here uh, in the attack on Foy. And so he had this, this very grim sense of good fortune uh, yeah. throughout his time in Europe. And certainly the attack on Foy was one of them. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, author Tom Clavin will be here to discuss his new book, To the Uttermost Ends of the Earth, the epic hunt for the South's most feared ship and the greatest sea battle of the Civil War. It's totally unknown to most everybody that uh, there was a, a battle at sea between two warships, the Confederate CSS Alabama and the Union USS Kearsage. This was an all-out broadside-to-broadside uh, battle between these two ships, and uh, only one was going to survive. It wasn't like they were going to you know, uh, go their separate ways and we'll see you another day. This was a fight to the death. That's next time. Now, he ended up taking command of Easy Company from uh, Dick Winters, how was that transition? How did he settle into command? Was he comfortable with it? Um, well, he, he takes command of the company. Winters essentially gives it to him um, when it, it appeared that uh, Norman Dyke was, was not up to the task. Um, but he, he fit very well into the company. And I, I'd say that's one of the, the, the interesting angles of our book, Fierce Valor, is that a lot of our narrative is spent with his time in D Company, Dog Company, as it was known, because a lot of people don't realize that up until January of 1945, he was with this other company and not Easy Company. Um, but he would go on to become the longest serving commander of Easy Company, essentially until it was disbanded uh, months after the Second World War comes to an end. And one reason why he fits so well into Easy Company as its commander is because he had already established a rather fierce reputation for himself that had spread throughout the entire regiment. Uh, 
Right. Uh, and so say what you will about uh, some of the, the rumors and some of them grew, you know, exceedingly wild and colorful, you know, far beyond the scope of reality. Um, but sometimes it did not matter what actually happened. It mattered what men believed had happened. And this was most certainly the case in regard to his transition into easy company. And everybody realized that he was a man not to be trifled with. Uh, but eventually, by the time we get to the end of the war, uh, a lot of the men did warm up to him. And uh, you see that in some of his correspondence and some of the, the reminiscences written later on. And so uh, he wasn't always a, a cold-blooded killer, as many people thought he was. There, there was a warm side to him. And uh, it, it's one that you know, he, he imbued his, you know, his men with camaraderie. That, that was one of my questions, and maybe this applies, is, uh, you know, going beyond him being seemingly one-dimensional, were there things that you discovered about him that surprised you in your research? Uh, very much so. Um, you know, this was a man who was not only an efficient platoon or company leader. Uh, you know, in, in many ways, it's a love story. Uh, he had four, perhaps five wives throughout his lifetime. And when I, when I spoke to uh, one of his uh, step-great-grandchildren, it has a, a very sort of uh, interesting genealogy and many branches to his family tree because of his various marriages. Um, but, you know, I, it, all of his family reminiscences of him are very warm, tender. Uh, he was very quiet, an absolute gentleman. And it really sort of went against the grain of what we were told about Ronald Spears. Um, right. But, you know, when, when I asked one of his, uh, you know, step-grandsons, you know, how, how can you reconcile the, the fact that, you know, he was married four or five times, um, but everybody has these very kind, thoughtful memories of him, you know, within the family. Right. And he said something that I thought was profoundly true uh, when I thought about it in hindsight. And, you know, his grandson said that he, he was married to the army. You know, he, he had a, a very long career that, you know, went 20 years beyond uh, the Second World War. And unfortunately, uh, that wreaked a lot of uh, havoc and uncertainty uh, in regards to his domestic life. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, the 1980s, where he married his his final wife, uh, and he was married to her for well over 20 years. And the reason why the marriage lasted is because he was out of the army oh. by that point. Uh, and so that was definitely one of the surprising things, um, is that there was a tender side to him, and people had very warm memories of him. And that leads into my next question. He did serve, obviously, after World War II in later conflicts, which I don't think is widely known. Can you talk a little bit about his service after World War II? Uh, yes, right after the Second World War, um, a lot of people don't realize that the 101st Airborne was actually disbanded for a time hmm. after the Second World War because there was this thought that what do we need two airborne divisions for? You know, we, we just ended the World War. Um, and so he uh, joined the 82nd for a time and he, he flip-flops back and forth to uh, various units at, at stateside positions. Um, but he eventually ends up with the esteemed Rockassons, uh, a very you know, elite airborne unit. And he serves with them throughout much of the war in Korea. Uh, and beginning in the fall of 1951, 
Um, he finds himself in some very fierce instances of combat that were just as perilous as anything that he saw in World War II Europe. Uh, he survived two more combat jumps. He mm. rose to the rank of major while he was in the Korean War. And uh, this is where we really had to do a lot of uh, interesting investigative work um, because there was a lot less secondary information uh, about his service in Korea. Uh, and so I think readers will be really surprised by what they find in regard to his service during that conflict. But uh, thereafter, um, he, he serves as a, an advisor during the Loatian Civil War in the summer of 1961. Uh, and so he was, uh, you know, essentially, you know, serving as a as a, an advisor in one of these proxy wars in Cold War Southeast Asia. And uh, most surprisingly of all, uh, we found trace evidence that uh, after he formally retired from the U.S. Army, uh, he found himself in a State Department job in wow. none other than the U.S. Embassy in Saigon in Vietnam. Uh, as we get into 1964, 1965. And uh, the U.S. ambassador to Vietnam at that time was none other than Maxwell Taylor, who was his former division commander during oh. the Second World War. And so uh, we highly suspect that Ronald Spears was involved in clandestine operations uh, around the time that the Vietnam War was starting to heat up. Yeah, I would probably imagine that was true as, as well. It's, it's a good bet. Shifting gears to a, a final question, you have a popular channel on YouTube. It's called Real Real History, right? Correct. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that and, and how you launched that and why. Um, our, our YouTube channel, Real History, got started uh, as a pandemic project with a friend and I. Um, his name is Andrew Collins. He's a, a U.S. Army veteran, uh, an amateur filmmaker of sorts. And uh, I would often go visit, you know, his house, his wife, and uh, we, we would inevitably end up watching historical films, and I would always be giving color commentary throughout. And <laughs> he eventually just came to the conclusion, why don't we just put a camera in front of you, and let's start putting your commentary on YouTube. Uh, and so I, I took him up on that challenge, uh, and we've been doing that for well over a year. We've We've analyzed several dozen historical films, and it's it's essentially a, a history versus Hollywood channel. Mm. Um, and a lot of uh, your, your listeners and viewers may be familiar with reaction videos to, you know, mm. movies and TV shows that you can find, you know, that are replete on YouTube. Um, and so we decided to uh, alter that formula a little bit and rather do just, you know, a first time reaction video, actually give a historian track with commentary uh, that, that, takes the story a little bit deeper for some really well-known historical films. Uh, so, you know, I, I encourage people to uh, check it out. And uh, we have an episode by episode breakdown of both Band of Brothers and The Pacific, which are some of our most popular episodes. I was going to ask you that because um, do you do things like historical accuracy? Do you point out things in the series that aren't quite true? Yes, uh, th that's exactly what we do. We, uh, we talk about what historical films get right, what they get wrong, perhaps what they could have done better, and also uh, some interesting behind-the-scenes commentary and you know, making of production notes as well. I encourage everyone to check out Real History with Jared. The book is called Fierce Valor, 
the true story of Ronald Spears and his band of brothers. Thanks for coming back on the show today. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, author Tom Clavin will be here to discuss his new book, To the Uttermost Ends of the Earth, the epic hunt for the South's most feared ship and the greatest sea battle of the Civil War. It's totally unknown to most everybody that uh, there was a, a battle at sea between two warships, the Confederate CSS Alabama and the Union USS Kearsarge. This was an all-out broadside-to-broadside uh, battle between these two ships, and uh, only one was going to survive. It wasn't like they were going to you know, uh, go their separate ways and we'll see you another day. This was a fight to the death. That's next time. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.